What do Bianca Castafiore and Rihanna have in common? What about the Andes Mountains and the Chateau de Versailles? Here's a hint. They've been around since the dawn of time. They might be quaint or ostentatious. Yes, we're talking about jewels. Discover Voice of Jewels, a podcast from L'Ecole, School of Jewelry Arts, supported by Van Cleef and Arpels. Welcome to Life and Art from FT Weekend. I'm Lila Raptopoulos, and this is our Friday chat show. Today we are talking about the new French film, The Taste of Things, which is directed by Tran Anhung. It stars Juliette Binoche and Benoit Magimel as two people who have devoted their lives to food as an art form. He as a food connoisseur and a gentleman of leisure, she as his extremely talented cook. The film is set in the 1880s, and it is both an ode to cooking and a low-simmering love story. The Taste of Things is France's entry for Best Foreign Film at the Oscars, and it has gotten a ton of praise for its technical mastery and luscious presentation. So today, we're here to get into it. I'm Lila Raptopoulos, and I'm preparing an eight-hour meal for the Prince of Eurasia. Joining me from London is Harriet Fitch-Little, the FT's food and drink editor. She is a champagne pulled from a shipwreck at the bottom of the sea. Hi, Harriet. <laughs> Hi, I always appreciate your introductions, Lila. Like watching this film, I, was, I don't know what she's going to be able to pull out, but you did. <laughs> we did it. Um, also from London, another friend of the podcast, the FT's resident gourmand, our food critic, Tim Hayward. Welcome, Tim. Thank you very much. I'm really thrilled to have you both here, uh, especially to talk about this film, because I have tons of questions and I found it really interesting. But before we get into reactions, I thought we could talk a little bit about what's happening in this film. For anyone who hasn't seen it, what do you think people need to know? I think it's uh, it's visually sumptuous. Um, if you're yeah. not a massive foodie, you're going to be bored rigid. But if you are, you're going to love it on pretty much every every sort of level. And it's slow. It's very, very mm -hmm. slow and very gentle and very romantic and sweet. Yeah. Harriet, how would you describe it? It did feel to me like a kind of like a cinematic vegetable still life. <laughs> <laughs> right. It reminds me a bit of that film Portrait of a Lady on Fire, where you essentially have a quite tight focus on relationship between two people living in this slightly isolated kingdom, um, in this case, mm -hmm. a 19th century French sort of, I mean, I don't know what it is, a sort of country chateau, isn't it? Yeah, it, it, it's a very French setup. Very. It really is. Yes. The kind of place we had to pay a lot of money to go on holiday. Yeah, and, you know, <laughs> a, a man and his cook, and that's not putting her down, that's explicitly what she wants to be referred to as. It comes up quite a lot in the film, doesn't it, that she really sees herself mm -hmm. as the cook before anything else. Um, and he seems to, I mean, I don't know what his job is, does Andrew? Did you work that out, Tim? What, what <laughs> he seems I, to have a lot of money <laughs> to have dinners with his friends and think about French food, but I've got no idea how he got the money or the chateau that he lives in. I, I think it's the, it's the gentleman of leisure thing, isn't it? It, 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 is, it is, it is very how? much. He's, he's got enough money from somewhere, possibly inherited, possibly from running some terribly oppressive factory in Lyon. Um, <laughs> right, but but he, he doesn't have to worry about much. Um, I, I do love the idea of being a, a sort of significant food individual, mm -hmm. but paying a servant to do the work. 
<laughs> I, find, I found that quite baffling. It was a bunch of blokes sitting in there going <laughs> about various things she'd cooked, but very few of them actually picked up a pan at any point until she was too sick to do it herself. <laughs> that, seemed, that seemed unfair in many ways. Yeah. <laughs> um, to set the scene also, the first scene is about 37 minutes and it's of them and two assistants cooking a meal in this beautiful kitchen. You see how things are cooked in the 1880s. You see them pulling water from a well. There's no electricity. They're sort of picking the lettuce. You see the number of steps that it takes to make everything. And then they're bringing it up to this dining room to feed his friends. And just to really all they're doing is talking about food. Mm. That's the film. Yeah, you got it. Like <laughs> That's the film. <laughs> okay, so why don't we um, back up a little and just big picture. What did you both think of the film? Did you like it? I would say I'm worried that not liking it will sort of out me as not being particularly good at my job and not enough of a foodie <laughs> as the food and drink editor. I mean, I, I think I basically found the visuals absolutely beautiful and I really did enjoy watching the food being cooked. Yeah. I think as a film in general, perhaps there wasn't enough um, emotional tension to bring me through mm. it. Yeah, I, I mean, sure, we'll talk about it more, but it's a film that doesn't really problematize any of the dynamics within it, right? Of which there are many. <laughs> yes. I, kept right. on, I kept on in this film sort of waiting for the drama or the bad person to enter. And at first I thought it was going to be him, you know, she's mm. the put upon cook. Um, but no, he's, you know, a lovely man who comes and helps her cook and clearly views her as an equal. And then you think, okay, maybe it's going to be his friends who are the, you know, patriarchal adversary who don't really treat her seriously and give him all the credit. But no, they're all lovely. Lovely men who take her very seriously as well and know that she's an equal party in this. And it sort of went on and on like that until I realised about halfway through the film there just wasn't going to be that sort of um, opposing force. Who's the bad guy? Yeah, I had trouble with that too. I think gout is the bad guy. <laughs> Gout's the bad guy. <laughs> it, it, it could have done with more sort of action in that department, I suppose. I think, I think the thing you can't get away from is also the English are massively jealous of the French about two things. <laughs> and those two things are food and love or sex. And, right. and, and I think it idealizes both of those things in a way that if you're being practical about it and you switch your brain in when you watch the film, you're screaming at the screen and going, no, no, this can't be, literally can't be. But actually you're also <laughs> quietly just going, oh God, it's so beautiful. So beautiful. <laughs> and it really is. Uh, I loved it. I loved it. And I also yeah. came away from it feeling... I didn't have my brain switched on. <laughs> mm, mm. Lila, what did you think as someone who stands outside this sort of British, French yeah. fetishization? Um, <laughs> what did you think of it from a slightly more removed perspective? Yes. Well, I don't have sort of like a complicated relationship with the French in like the rest of us, <laughs> quite yeah. the same way. So I felt that I could fully enjoy it in that way. The cooking scenes, I. I honestly would have skipped the love story and watched an hour yes. and a half of them cooking and yeah. eating. That was totally beautiful. And I enjoyed it. But I have to say, I felt that I was missing something for most of it. And I was trying to figure out what that was. And I listened to an interview with the director, Trinan Hung, afterwards. And I started to realize, oh, of course, this is about this time period when French cuisine was sort of being codified. Yes. Like this is an actual time period in French history where you have chefs taking French food from the everyday to this elevated, cultured sort of art form. Like they're inventing haute cuisine. We're watching them sort of invent haute cuisine. And I didn't actually feel like I got that from the film. That felt really subtle. 
I, th- well, I mean, perhaps it suffered by being too modern and too subtle about the relationship between the men and the cook. But genuinely, there were yeah. a lot of old blokes wandering around using <laughs> right. very special, very exclusive language to talk about things in a way that, you know, they were deliberately excluding other people from what it was they were trying to create. Um, but, you know, yeah. Because there, you know, there, there were men like that doing that thing. Let's talk about the relationship that these characters had with the food and with French cuisine. To start, Tim, when we were emailing ahead of this recording, you said mm. that the film underscored the difference between the French and the British and how they relate to food. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Can you tell me what you meant by that, just in terms of the French, especially the French point of view? Um, I, I suppose it's the, it's the way that they are able to talk about it and take it seriously in mm-hmm. a way that we still can't. The, yeah. the, the Brits don't seem to behave that way. And it's easy to characterize the French as, as doing that and to laugh at it. And sometimes, even in this film, it, it is truly absurd, some of the things they say. You can't imagine... Right, they call it kind of pretentious. Yeah, you can't imagine saying something that pretentious in front of somebody you loved or were trying to impress with the dinner. They'd leave. <laughs> they, they would leave on the spot and think, you know, they'll, they'll never swipe on you on Tinder again. Yeah, I agree. I felt that in the film, too. Like... It was both nice and sort of annoying that these French people were taking food this seriously. <laughs> I found myself swinging back and forth on it. The director makes the point really well with the the little character Pauline, the little girl. Yeah, she's the apprentice in the kitchen. I found her the most interesting of the lot. There's a scene at the beginning which genuinely chills me to the marrow, where she's sitting there next to the older man in what, if you've watched a lot of French films, looks like one of those things that's going to become very problematic very quickly, yes, but doesn't. Exactly. And she simply describes what she's tasting and detecting, and he's he's drawing it out of her. And I was looking at that and thinking, my God, this, this, is, this is tantamount to child abuse. This is absolutely appalling, <laughs> turning into this little robot. And at the end, the most important key moment is when she's talking to the Juliette Binoche character. And she simply mm-hmm. says, yeah, when I had the baked Alaska, I, I wanted to cry. And yeah. and that one of those is the artificial, very male, very sort of, I don't know, I want to say sort of anally retentive approach to parsing and codifying food. And at the other mm-hmm. end of it, she's just suddenly reacting to this thing in a truly, truly emotional way, in a different room to the men. We could say that this film is not exactly shy of letting people have emotional reactions to food overall, is it? Before we started recording, <laughs> we were talking about this line, which I'm so glad also made Tim laugh because it just made me you know, really cringe and shrivel up into myself when he has to start cooking for her. So this relationship of cooking is reversed and he suddenly becomes the cook and he's bringing her all these meals, there's little flowers on the things that he's cooking. But anyway, at a certain point, he says to her, can I watch you eat? Which <laughs> I just thought was disgusting. We laughed too, yeah. <laughs> but I don't know, perhaps that's the... We should we should dive into that a bit more. It's it's not that they're unemotional about the food, but it is it's there's so much language, mm. and it's mm-hmm. it's like when you you, know, you you go and see a painting in a gallery, and you don't want to read the five thousand words of utter whiffle that go with it. You really just want to stand in front of the damn thing and look at it for a few mm-hmm. minutes and and see what happens mm-hmm. to you. Right. Can we talk a little bit about the food that was being cooked? Were there any foods that you liked or disliked seeing cooked? Yes. Um, as I was watching him sort of cook this dish for her by 
what was it? He was boiling the feet of a chicken right, before yeah. it was fully yeah. plucked. And then he was removing and then he was putting mushrooms in the skin. And I thought, OK, there's something going on here that I just don't. <laughs> just <laughs> that, don't that was poulet demi doy, uh, uh, chicken in half mourning. Uh, and oh, so the, wow. The, half the, the, morning. Half M-O-U-R-N. Morning. M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. So you wow. basically, you put your hand inside the carcass, you lift the skin, so you've got space inside, and then you pack slices of black truffle over it. So it looks right. like underneath its skin, it's wearing, well, effectively a lacy black dress, uh, which would have been <laughs> the half morning. It's an absolute classic of, of French cuisine, along with the omelette. I mean, they pretty much tick mm. off all the absolute classics that you need to know and want to know about. Right, 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 right. What was it like for you to watch that? I found it wonderful, but I, I could mm. watch anybody do that over and over and over again. <laughs> and I'm always fascinated by, I don't know, I'd, I don't do sport, but I imagine you'd never get tired of watching a golfer hit a ball or another <laughs> golfer hit a ball. You'd always have something to say about it. <laughs> I was more troubled, to be honest, with some of the bits of the filmmaking. I think he really needed to turn down the wild bird track that went through absolutely everything. <laughs> I thought at one point it was an homage to Hitchcock and there were a thousand feral birds outside the window. He never turned that it down. Is- yeah. It is worth saying there's no music in this film no, and there are a lot no. of footsteps clicking on tile. Yes, it you've is got the footsteps. Almost exclusively it was bonkers, wasn't it? That mainly mm-hmm. I can't forgive him for cutting between a shot of a peach and Juliette Benash's bottom. I just think that is just <laughs> it was so, the pear. so cornball. It's a pear, it be, actually, Tim. It was a pear. Yeah. Tim, <laughs> it was I a pear. I only noticed the bottom. I'm like, just forgive me now. <laughs> Coming back to watching the process of the food being cooked, I grow vegetables. So at the beginning when she's cutting these vegetables and they're all really mm-hmm. wonky, weird vegetables, I think they must have gone to quite some effort to get vegetables that really look bad in yeah. a way. <laughs> uh, I loved that. But then I often found myself screaming at the end dish, the closer it got towards completion and suddenly go from these beautiful, fresh ingredients to this incredibly, the the huge volivants, the best example of this. You go from these incredible constituent parts to this enormous, you know, towering thing of pastry with this very thick white sauce all over it. It it looks naff, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't look like how you would want to present those ingredients at a time when what we prize in food is basically keeping things as close as possible to their original state. Absolutely agreed. And, and, but I think that's part of the codification process, isn't it? I mean, they've, once you've mm. discussed whether or not you're going to have carrots as an aromat in your broth, you know, once somebody said yes, and somebody said and it goes well with celery and it goes well with onion, you're starting to build up a list of things that you simply can't do it without. Mm-hmm. to spend the rest of the conversation talking about like if this film worked <laughs> one thing that our producer Lulu really bristled at was the politics of the film some reviews have praised it as radical partially because it features a woman chef who's clearly respected by her male counterpart which is a pretty low bar <laughs> um, it didn't really feel radical to me at all she mostly stays in the kitchen um, it didn't really allude to a bigger world out there it did feel very proud to be French <laughs> in some ways. But I wanted to know what you both felt about that. Well, I think it's a film that you keep on expecting the tension to emerge, don't you? And you never get it yeah. to begin with. You sort of keep waiting for the thing that brings some politics into it. And it was clearly a mm-hmm. very intentional choice that none of those things happen. But Perhaps it would have been a more interesting film if it had. Yeah. So what do you think 
the movie is about when you left? Did you feel like it was about grief? It was about gender dynamics? It was about the beauty of food? What did you feel like it was about? I think it's probably about food as art. At the end of the day, the sort of personal and private appreciation of a shared passion. I was trying to think about why I didn't like the film more. And I think perhaps it does come down to the relationship that you have with food, because the Mm -hmm. sort of eating that this celebrates is this really cerebral and sensual and the sort of experience that I roll my eyes at when I see people stimulating it on Instagram, this sort of like, oh my God, this is the best thing I've ever tasted. Wow. (laughs) And I was trying to think about the food films that I really love. And I think the food film that I love the most is Big Night with Stanley Tucci, which is is a 90s Mm. film about an Italian-American restaurant that's down on its luck and is essentially trying to put on a big party for some celebrity who's in town. And the focus of the food, it was very much a food-focused film, but it's basically all about the communal, celebratory, party, bringing people together aspect of food. And I watched that film and I feel really moved by it and I feel happy and because that's the bit of food that excites me rather than this sort of more contemplative intellectual relationship and perhaps people who have that relationship with food and I do believe they do I'd imagine those people love this film I suppose it can't help because of where and where it's set and when it's set it can't help but also have this overlay of gender and class and that that makes it a bit difficult I mean you really can't just look at it and not think about like who's the master here who's the servant you know, the right. incredible line, uh, you know, are you my cook or my wife? You know, that that ludicrous position at the end that they've managed to talk <laughs> themselves into. Um, they, 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 we, you, you can't get around that. Uh, it has a kind of, I don't know, uh, a slightly indecent absorption in the, in, mm. in the food itself. It actually mm. kind of lacks joy. Tim, it sounds like you actually have a more complicated relationship <laughs> with this movie than you first suggested. And I'm wondering, Harriet, if you feel victorious. <laughs> I feel so relieved. I thought I was going to have to come in here and say, you know, it's a very good film. Yes, as food and drink editor, I see the value of this important piece of work. But if I've got, you know, Tim's blessing. You know. <laughs> <laughs> and on that, I will say thank you both so much. This was so much fun. We will be back in just a moment for more or less. I'm Michaela Tendera, host of Behind the Money, a podcast from the Financial Times. Every week, we take you inside the biggest business and investing stories of the moment. From Apple's reliance on China. The more you peel back the onion, the more you realize that it's China all the way down. To turmoil in the banking world. If it goes bankrupt, we'll have chaos in financial markets. It would have been absolute carnage. Follow Behind the Money wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back for More or Less, the part of the show where each guest shares one thing they want to see more of or less of culturally. Harriet, let's start with you. What do you have? Well, I almost missed the start of this film because I didn't realise that films shown at the BFI cinema on the South Bank in London don't have any ads and they actually start exactly when they are meant to on the moment. 
And I'm not saying that I necessarily want more films with no ads because I do quite like the ads, but I think more films when you actually know what time they are going to start so that you can plan <laughs> your evening effectively. That's my um, very dull, but maybe quite important more. <laughs> That's a good point. Sometimes they start before the film is supposed to start too, which no one tells It's you. mayhem. <laughs> <laughs> Tim, what about you? I would like to say that in my general cultural journey of the last couple of months, I would like to see less content. Oh, yeah. Really just sure. a lot less content. I'm, I'm in a, a phase of a PR for a book, and my PRs are trying to get me to sort of put more stuff online, which is horrible. Mm-hmm. I mean, literally, you're spending hours <laughs> a day making idiotic little videos uh, and thrusting them out there. I agree. And I'm sort of I'm being thrust to different friends' substacks. And I'm reading them, bless Mm -hmm. them, because I like them and they're my friends and I want to encourage them and it's all terrific. But you realize that none of this stuff is being edited at all. And so without wishing to over-flatter my editor who's in the room with me at the moment, we really need some (laughs) editing and we need a lot less unthought-of content. Yeah, actually, that's a really good one, Tim. I really agree with you. Harriet, we need... We need an army of you. <laughs> <laughs> I would like fewer radical surprises in the culture that I'm consuming. Um, I watched the show One Day on Netflix. Yeah. Um, it was a novel that became a movie in 2011, and it's now been remade as everything's been remade into a Netflix show. And for a Netflix thing, I actually really liked it. I thought it was great. I thought the actors were good. Every episode is one day a year later. So you kind of watch them through their 20s. And it made me think about my 20s. And I just was really enjoying it. And then at the end, something that I'm not going to spoil, but was huge, happened. And it made me hate the whole thing. <laughs> I think and I was people, mad for days. I think lots of people have had that reaction to that book or film, just feeling outraged by what you're describing. Totally. I was totally hoodwinked. I would not have spent all that time. I was really mad. And I don't want surprises like that. So that's it. Just like be nice to your viewers. <laughs> it's an important it's use of your platform with the podcast, Lila. Telling you, creators for unpleasant surprises. <laughs> Tim and Harriet, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was really such a delight. Thank you, Lila. Thank you. That's the show. Thank you for listening to Life and Art from FT Weekend. Take a read through the show notes. We have linked to everything mentioned today, as well as places that you can follow Tim and Harriet. Every link that goes to the FT gets you past the paywall. Also in the show notes is a discount to a subscription to the Financial Times and ways to stay in touch with me on email and Instagram. I'm Lila Raptopoulos, and here's my talented team. Katya Kamkova is our senior producer. Lulu Smith is our producer. Our sound engineers are Breen Turner and Sam Javinko with original music by Metaphor Music. Topher Forges is our executive producer and our global head of audio is Cheryl Brumley. Have a lovely week and we'll find each other again on Monday. <laughs>